Lord, we ask. That sounded like the first beat of some music then, didn't it? Um, Lord, we ask that you bless LJ. And we ask that you use her to bless all of us. We listen for your words. And we open up and invite you to speak and to challenge and to change us. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. So most of you will know this is the, the tenth week uh, on a long, from a long series on the Gospel of Mark. So we've looked at various different things about Jesus's character. We've looked at Jesus as the promised, Jesus as the healer, Jesus transfigured, Jesus as the king, Jesus as the commissioner. There's been lots of different things. And tonight we're looking at Jesus as the Messiah. So Naomi's going to come up and bring our reading. It's from Mark 8, verses 27 to 33. Um, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still, other, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. Thank you very much. So here we see Jesus declared as the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus begins by asking his disciples, who do you say I am? If I'm honest, I think Jesus already knew. I don't think he really needed to ask his disciples what other people were saying about him. Like he's God, he literally knows everything. But I think he was using it as a tactic to ask the question that he really wanted to ask. I think he was using it as a way of getting the disciples to come to an understanding of who they believed he was. That was so much more important to Jesus, that the people he was journeying alongside understood what he was all about. And so as, they ask, as Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They say, some think you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're a prophet. Like, this has already happened in Mark uh, chapter 6. It's a, it's a repeat of events where King Herod is asking about this guy called Jesus. And these same three people are reeled off. So we know that, that people were using these to try and understand what Jesus was about because they didn't have the words to put on what, they was li what he was like except by comparing him to someone else. So some people thought he was John the Baptist, but we know that he was beheaded. We, we read that in chapter 6, King Herod beheaded him. So to say that Jesus was John would mean that John would have had to have been raised from the dead. 
I mean, it's totally plausible, but we know that John was always meant to point towards Jesus rather than Jesus being a version of John. And it's slightly ironic because in the same way that John foreshadows Jesus, the identification of Jesus as a potential resurrected John gives foreshadow to the resurrection of Jesus that is yet to come. John himself said the one that would come after him would be greater. But the people around didn't understand that Jesus was the one that John was pointing towards. Some people thought Jesus was Elijah. Now, Elijah was really cool. We can read about him in 1 Kings. He was the dude who went up on Mount Carmel and prayed that God would set fire to a pile of damp wood to prove that our God is the true God and that the Baals, they're not really gods at all. But the really cool thing about Elijah was the way that he died. Because he didn't really die. We read in the Bible that he was walking along with his mentee, Elisha, and all of a sudden a chariot of fire appears and Elijah's taken up to heaven. It's no wonder the first century Jews were absolutely crazed with this guy. They believed that he watched everything that they did and that he would appear again as a sign that the day of the Lord was near. Now, most people believe that, that John was the Elijah that was prophesied to come again. We read about that in the book of Malachi, which is a small book right at the end of the Old Testament. In saying that Jesus could have been Elijah, the people were understanding Jesus as a forerunner, not understanding he was the one that everybody else was pointing towards. Some people even thought Jesus was one of the prophets. Now, they weren't saying he was just any old prophet. They were saying he was one of the prophets. He's up there with the big guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. What they're saying is that they notice something of God within Jesus. They notice that some way he's bringing a message of God. But they don't recognize him as God in the flesh. What about you? Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? I wonder what we would reply if Jesus had asked us that. Do we recognize Jesus as our Messiah? Peter jumps in to reply. He's very often the spokesperson for the disciples, and especially so in Mark's gospel. It's thought that Mark was just retelling Peter's first-hand stories, which is why often he's the one giving the right, not quite the right answer. Peter's often the one giving the wrong answer in front of the crowd. And here Peter gives his reply to Jesus, you are the Messiah. Now to most of us that'll seem pretty obvious, but to some of you that might be the first time you've heard that. What does the Messiah even mean anyway? Well, the Old Testament gives us a picture of what it could include, but the meaning of the word has expanded over time. To the Israelites, this word was used concerning an anointed person like a king or a priest or a prophet. But in early Judaism, it became a word signaling a savior who would come to rescue the nation and return it to its former glory. Part of this was due to the influence of their surroundings. The Roman Empire and the Hellenistic culture affected the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. Many first century Jews would have been seeking a Messiah who was a powerful political ruler. Someone who'd come like, like a king or like a priest. So for Peter to say Jesus was the Messiah was a rather radical thought. He didn't exactly fit the expectations. Maybe Peter was expecting Jesus to somehow start a political revolution 
I mean, Peter has already witnessed Jesus drawing crowds, telling parables about sowing seeds and putting lamps on bowls. He's seen him back chatting the Pharisees and, and going against many of the Jewish traditions. Would it really be that far of a stretch for Jesus to incite a revolution? No, I, I don't think it would, because Jesus was planning a revolution. But it wasn't a revolution like Peter was expecting. That's why in the very next verse, just after Peter said, yeah, you're the Messiah, Jesus, tell, Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anyone, keep quiet. But we'll come back to that point a little later. I wonder if any of you have ever seen a trailer for a film or one of your friends has, has told you a little bit about it and you think you get what it's about. Like you think you know what's going to happen, but actually it's not until you've watched it that you realise what it's about. This happened to me. My, one of my friends has taken to, to making me sit down and watch cult classics with her and we watched Fight Club last week. And <laughs> if you haven't watched it, the main phrase most people will know is the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Now I'd heard that and I thought it's this laddish film where they get together and they have a bit of a brawl and there's bits of blood everywhere. And I'm kind of right, like there are little bits where they, they get together and they fight. But if you've, seen, if you've seen it, you'll know it's so much more than that. Like, like there's so much more you can't understand. I won't spoil it because there's like a, a great bit, but if you haven't seen it, go and see it. But I think that demonstrates the point really well. It was kind of like that for Peter. He, he kind of gets that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't really understand. He hasn't seen it. He doesn't get it. Straight after Peter declares Jesus as the Messiah, the text says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. Peter must have been thinking like, what the heck? I just told this guy I think he's the Messiah, and now he's telling me he's going to suffer. Messiahs don't suffer, they're powerful, they're strong, surely he's talking rubbish. The text goes on to say, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that conversation? Jesus is there prophesying what's going to happen to him in the coming days. He's saying to his disciples, if you're going to say that I'm your Messiah, understand this is what's in store for me. And if you're following me, this is what's in store for you too. Listen closely. And then we have Peter completely misunderstanding everything that Jesus is saying, pulling him to the side, giving him a dressing down. It's like there's a misconnection for Peter. There's, there's a missing link he hasn't quite figured out. But Peter wasn't the only one that struggled with this. We read in Acts 17, verse 3, that Paul is in the synagogue in Thessalonica having to sit down the Jews and explain to them that the Messiah had to suffer. It was part of the divine plan. This wasn't a mistake. There was no other way. Peter heard it straight from Jesus' mouth and he didn't understand. So imagine how much harder it was for these Jews hearing it from Paul. And then there's us. Words like Messiah don't really exist in our generation. And people outside the church probably wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about. Do you guys understand? Do you get that Jesus is your Messiah? Do you know what that means? That's a question for me as much as it is for you guys. I've been challenged on this massively lately and I've had to sit down with God and say, what does it mean? I wouldn't be asking you guys if I hadn't asked the question of myself first. 
and know that I'm still on a journey of figuring it out. We know that Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Meshiach. Owen told us about that a couple of weeks ago. It means the anointed one. So to call Jesus the Messiah is to say that he's anointed. I'm not really sure if that actually adds any more clarity. There's a lot of words that we throw around, but do we really get what they mean? When we say Jesus is the anointed one, we're saying he's the one with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's the messenger of God. He's the one who brings about the kingdom of heaven on earth. The Jews understood the Messiah to be the one who would come to save their nation. So when we call Jesus the Messiah, we're saying that he is the one who's our saviour. The root of the word saviour comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to save. It comes back to this idea that the Jews had, that there would be one who would come that was anointed by God to save the nation. But it means so much more than that. It means to save as in to rescue, but it also means to heal, to restore. It means to, to bring to fullness, to give new life. Jesus is the saviour of the world in that he died for all. But he didn't just die for the sake of dying. His death was a sacrifice on our behalf so we can be restored, so we can be made whole, so we can know joy and hope. By saying Jesus is your Messiah, you're saying you accept the fact that he's taken away your sins and suffered for your sake so you can become more fully alive. Do you know Jesus as your Messiah? Do you understand what that actually means? That he's taken away your sins, that he longs for you to be restored. We're going to have another reading now. It's the little bit just before this event's taken place, and hopefully it's going to add a little bit more clarity. It's Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spat on the man's eyes, and put his hands on him. Jesus asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he, said, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Thank you again. So just before this event where Jesus is chatting to his disciples saying, who, who do you say I am? Before Jesus has asked the question, Mark writes this story of a blind guy who gets healed. Now you might be thinking, how on earth is this relevant? Or because we're at the very end of a series of 10 weeks on Mark, you might have realised that everything is a little bit more linked than you might first imagine. This is an interesting healing story in itself. And it's one of only two that are left out of other Gospels. So it must have had a real importance for Mark to choose to include it. A couple of weeks ago, Rich talked about Jesus as the one who heals. But we know it's hard to build a biblical theology around healing because Jesus does it in a different way at different points throughout the Gospels. In this text, we read how Jesus leans the blind guy out of the village. 
He spits on the man's eyes and he lays on his hands and he asks, can you see anything? Now, under the Levitical laws, spit would have been uh, like an unclean bodily fluid. But it was common Jewish belief that, that some people had like magical spit that had healing properties. So some people argue that it was Jesus' spit that healed the man. And other people say that it was his compassion upon the man. And that's why he was healed. This is the only healing miracle Jesus performs that appears to take place in two stages. Now, it could be argued by some that obviously Jesus wasn't capable. He had insufficient power. Maybe he'd run out of, of magic hands. But we know that at this point in Mark's gospel, he's already raised someone from the dead. He's healed a paralyzed man. He's cast out countless demons. I think it'd be hard to suggest that Jesus isn't capable or he doesn't have enough power. Instead, I'd like to suggest that Jesus was doing this as like a symbolism to show how the blind man's physical journey was a representation of the disciples' spiritual journey. We heard Peter give this declaration, Jesus is the Messiah. But he didn't really get what it meant until Jesus explained again. In the same way, this blind guy has like a two-stage healing where Jesus lays on his hands and he asks him if he can see. And he says, I see people. They're walking around like trees. Like he can see, but it's blurry. It's, it's out of focus. The shapes aren't properly formed. He can't quite figure out what, it's lo- what he's looking at. And it's not until Jesus steps in again that he can see. There's this continued theme throughout the Gospel of Mark of Jesus as the secret Messiah. As we read Mark's Gospel, most of us know Jesus as the Messiah, whether that's a a kind of Peter basic understanding or whether that's a, a deeper understanding. But as we read in along, it seems that most of the people in the Gospel don't really have a clue. We know that Mark knows, that's why he's writing his Gospel, and we know that Jesus knows. That's why he's doing the things that he's doing. But it seems that the only other ones that know Jesus as the Messiah are the demons. And that's why they flee. They're they're afraid of him. They know that he's the anointed one. They know that he's got the spirit of God. They know he's the saviour who's come and they're scared. We as the readers are meant to know Jesus as the Messiah because in the very first verse of Mark's gospel, he introduces it as the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So the point is that we're meant to follow along with the people in the gospel as they go on their journey of figuring out what that means. It's here in the reading we had tonight that that Peter declares Jesus as the Messiah for the first time in this gospel. Like it's, it's a pivotal moment. But then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And it's exactly the same after the blind guy is healed. In verse 26, he says, don't tell anyone. Don't even go into the village. He does this because he knows they don't have a proper understanding. And he doesn't want them declaring to other people, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, without also knowing the message, he's going to suffer and die. Jesus knows Peter doesn't understand what it means. Jesus predicts his death three times in the Gospel of Mark. And this is the very first time that he does it. Jesus is saying what it means for him to be the Messiah. He's saying that it means he's going to die, but Peter still doesn't get it.
think I might have put some of my notes somewhere. <laughs> might be on the chair over there. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. It's not until the very moment where Jesus dies, right at the end of the gospel, that the first person really understands what it means. And it's, it's not Peter. It's none of the disciples, actually. It's not even the women that were following Jesus. But it's a Roman centurion. He stands before the cross of Jesus. He, he watches him breathe his last breath. And he, as he dies, he says, surely this was the Son of God. There's no misunderstanding there. At the cross, everything became clear. And after Jesus is resurrected, he sees his disciples again. And then they understand. Then they know. Then they go and build his church because they're sure that he is the Messiah. But what about us? Do we know Jesus is our Messiah? I mean, if we look at Peter, he took his time. He saw Jesus perform countless miracles. He walked alongside him every day. He, he had the opportunity to ask Jesus whatever question he wanted. Like, I, I would love to have the opportunity to, to say, Lord, what are you doing? And, and Peter had that. And yet it wasn't until he got to the cross that Peter actually understood what it was all about. But for us, we know about the cross. We have the gospel. We can read all about it. It's, it's laid out before us. But the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is your Messiah? Do you understand what that really means? You might be a little bit like Peter. You might get it, but you might not really get it. Or you might never have even thought about it before. Or some of you might be like that centurion. You might stand firm on your faith and say, yes, I know Jesus is my Messiah. I get it. In the text, it says in verse 27 that Jesus was walking along with his disciples. That was when he asked this question to them. He was on the journey with them, walking beside them every step of the way. And he's walking with us. That's when he asks us, do you get me as your Messiah? Like this is the moment where it gets serious. Like, like what are you going to say to Jesus? How are you going to respond to him? This is one of your chances to, to step in and say, yes, you're my Messiah. I get it. You've got my everything. Or, or maybe this is a moment for you to say, hang on, Jesus. I'm, I'm not there yet. I just need a little bit longer. And you know what? That's totally okay. I, I did that for five years. I was like, hold on, Jesus. I'm not ready yet. But it did get to a point where eventually, like, I just couldn't wait any longer. I had to make that decision. I had to say, yes, you're my Messiah, you've got everything. Know that at some point, you're going to have to make the decision. Maybe you want to do that tonight. Maybe it'll be the first time for you. Maybe the first time you've even thought about it. Or maybe you want to take this as an opportunity to recommit and say, yeah, Jesus, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten you're my Messiah, but but I do get it. Whichever way is fine. Know that God loves you either way. I think Owen's going to come back up now and, and lead some form of response. Might be silence or it might be other things. I will leave that to him.
Thank you, LJ. The um, the whole silence response thing normally comes when when Rich uh, or whoever says, uh, and now over to you, and I haven't got a clue what to do. So let's have a moment of silence together. <laughs> sort of <laughs> now you see through me. Um, but let's stand. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if God actually wants to give the gift of faith um, tonight in some shape or form. Shove us all along in our journey um, I'm sure a bit, but um, but actually there are some moments where like LG had that moment on the 6th of May 2012 where she'd been like thinking about stuff, been engaging with uh, Jesus on some level and then suddenly, oh, oh how he loves us. It all became real. It all became alive and suddenly her heart was... Um, captured, captivated, won over. Um, suddenly it was all true. Um, and I wonder if um, there could be people in a similar place. Um, and maybe tonight's a night where it could all click into place, uh, come alive in a, in a much bigger, better sort of way. It's not about Ah, oh, suddenly, yeah, I get that Jesus is the Messiah. I understand all that that exactly means. It's not about getting our heads exactly neatly, tidily around this thing. Actually, it's this moment beyond words. And um, it's the gift of the grace of God and this reception of it and being caught up in that and finding yourself held in it and, and suddenly finding you believe. <laughs> It's this gift of peace and joy and um, God's goodness just coming into our lives. And, uh, and I haven't got adequate words for it, but I've known it. And many people have known it. And LJ knew it that day. And um, So how to do this? Tim, could you, um, you know get into place um, and we're gonna there's a there's a final song that we can sing um, and it's and it's a song for you know all of us who are kind of in already to some extent uh, that will will kind of a song of commission a prayerful moment of who do you say I am Jesus you are the one and actually again I commit to following you and giving myself to you. Um, however, if you don't feel you can do that, but you'd like to do that, you know, if, if that sort of song is not true for you to sing, but you'd, you'd like it to be true, you dare to think, actually, God, that, that head to heart, whatever it was, that, that making true and making real, that gift of faith, goodness, all the stuff I was trying to say, if that hasn't happened and you'd like to put yourself out there and 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 kind of take a step of faith ask God so what about it um, then a way that you could take a step of faith is as we're singing this to um, I think I'll just be right at the back um, to come out and I'll pray with you and uh, and maybe and sometimes that, that kind of step of faith um, that actual like 
risk of doing something, that risk of nothing happening, you know, is of value, I think, in the equation of coming before God uh, with with our lives in all honesty. And um, and so that might be a, a risk for you to, to do that and to come and ask for me to pray with you. Um, but why not? <laughs> um, the rest of us, um, let's sing this song. Let's re-give our lives to following the one. And, um, and then I'm sure it'll be time for the pub in due course. Every moment I'm away, Lord.
it's not too late to get prayer for absolutely anything. I'll be hanging around for a good while, um, as will other uh, people on the team, um, etc. Um, but for now, uh, may the blessing of God Almighty, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.